Hey, this is David Merrill, pastor of the Well Church. I would like to first thank you for downloading the app and listening to what God is doing through the life and ministry of the Well Church. I would also ask that before you listen to this message, that you would pray that God not only continues to transform lives through this ministry, but also that as you hear the Word of God proclaimed, pray that the Holy Spirit will convict you in areas that your life has not been given over to God, empower you to repent and turn, but also embolden you to be doers of the Word and not simply hearers, in order that you become a light in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces, and even in your local church body. Let us be radically in love with Jesus and radically in love with his people. Once again, I just thank you for listening, and may God bless you abundantly. We're getting ready to move into a new section in chapter 12. Many people call this the practical section. This is the practical section of Paul's letter, 12 on. Now, I have a problem with that. It's, tr- it's kind of true, but I have a problem with calling it the practical section because that would imply that everything from 1 to 11 was somehow impractical. That it was, uh, it, 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 that's just theology. That's just, uh, you know, doctrine. It doesn't really apply to my life. It's not practical application. It's just doctrine and theology. And so we're going to jump into practical. But I would dare, I would dare to, I would bet you, and actually not bet you, I would, I would say that nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, I would say that what we're going to learn is that you cannot have practice without doctrine. You cannot have practice without uh, theology. And I believe Paul here in this book, in chapter 11 and chapter 12, there's two phrases that come out of this section before we jump in. Number one, you cannot worship who you do not know. And number two, you cannot practice what you do not know. Okay, so you cannot worship who you do not know and you cannot practice what you do not know. Like I want you to notice something here. At the end of 11 chapters of deep, deep, rich theology of the the gospel message of what Christ has done, the wrath of God, the vindication of Christ or the, or the, 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 the justification of Christ and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. 11 chapters of deep theology and then we get to the end of chapter 11. If you would, open your Bibles. Chapter 11, verse 33. This is what Paul does and this is what he says. He says, oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who will first give to him what, was, what that might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul's response Right after 11 chapters of theology and doctrine and the riches of God, Paul's first response is worship, is doxology, is praise. Who can know the riches of my God? Who can know who God is? Nobody can search his mind. Nobody can give him something that he has got to pay back. It's unfathomable. He is deep in mercy. This is my God. And his first response is to be pour, to pour out worship. And so what is he worshiping? He's worshiping based off of what everything that came before. So I'll say it again. You cannot worship who you don't know. And yet what I am noticing in our churches today is this movement 
completely contrary to what we see in the book of Romans. See, what I see and I'm experiencing today is this movement where, where worship is no longer based on doctrine and theology. Where our worship is no longer founded on what we know about God through his revelation, through his revealed word. Now worship now becomes the starting point, the middle, and the end for many Christian lives. This is where we sit. This is where we enter into our relationship with God. This is where we sit on our relationship with God. And this is where we finish with our relationship. We have no need for the word of God because the word, the, because worship, this moment, this experience has become it. And so what happens is the churches, now we've got to have amazing worship. We've got to have the right worship leader. We've got to have the right look upon us. We've got to have the right lights. We've got to have the right attraction. We've got to have the right instruments. We've got to have the right musicians. Everything's got to be perfect so we can draw people into our church to have them experience God through this emotional worship, and then they get stuck in this emotional worship. And guys, when I'm talking about worship, worship biblically is not singing praises. That's part of it. You know, worship biblically is everything you are, offer as the sacrifice to the Lord. So worship for, for, me, for worship can be the way that you love your wife as Christ loved the church. Worship for you can be mowing your neighbor's yard because you're treating your neighbor as yourself. Worship for you can be the way you act as an employee or as an employer. Worship for you is offering your whole bodies as a sacrifice, but the church has reduced it to singing songs. And so that is what, and we see this in the church where churches have been put on the map, not because of what's being taught on the pulpit, but by a worship band. People know churches not by their pastor, not even talking about you need to know their pastor, but not by what's being taught from the pulpit. They know the church is based off of the music based off of the worship team, based off of the songs. That's where they're getting their inner tip. So it's like we, we know Elevation. We know Hillsong. We know Bethel. We know these churches. And I'm not saying anything. But I don't know some of their theology. I, just, I know some of them. But some of their theology, I don't know Elevation. I don't know them, but I don't pay attention. But we know their churches based off of their worship team. And that's not just big churches. That's in individual churches, in, even in Hamilton County. We put all this emphasis in our worship team and we get to the point where we learn our doctrine from worship. We, we learn our, our relationship with God with, from worship. We have an experience with God through worship. We have emotions through worship. It's, everything is rooted in worship. And so we go, well, I don't need the Bible because the Bible doesn't give me that emotion that I get with the worship. It doesn't give me the excitement that I get from worship. It doesn't give me what I need that I get from worship. I, don't, I get why y'all need the Bible but I'm more of a spiritual person and so I like to be in this, 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 this realm of emotions and I don't get it from the Bible and so because I'm different, I need just worship. I just want to sing and sing and sing and that's who I am. Let me say it again. If you are not getting your, if your worship is not rooted in who you know God to be through doctrine and theology, it is not Worship, because you cannot worship who you do not know. If you're not rooted in the word of God, guess what? My question to you is, who are you worshiping? When you're singing praises to God, if it's not rooted in who God is, who are you worshiping? 
Because some people in the same room will worship the God of the Bible because they're rooted in the word of God. Then this person's worshiping a Jesus who's condemning. Who, this person's worshiping a Jesus who needs work. This worship person's worshiping a Jesus who's liberal and thinks that all their sins are okay. This person's worshiping a Jesus who's a hippie and says, love all, wrath of God is not even there. There's no justice in the Bible. This person's worshiping a Jesus who oddly looks like them, all in the same room, singing the same song, worshiping different Jesuses. You see, your worship has to be rooted in who God is. Now, I'm not saying you got to be a scholar. I'm not saying you got to spend three hours a day to, word, to read the Bible to, to be able to worship God. But what I am saying, and I'm not even saying that you can't worship God for what he's done in your life. David does it all the time. God has overflown my life. He's done blessing after blessing. But I'm saying that everything we do should be through the lens of who God is, revealed himself to be in the word of God. You can't even worship God properly for what he's done in your life if you're not reading it through the lens of the word of God. Because you're only limited to that which you think is a blessing. Does that make sense? Like, we're only limited. Like, you're never going to be with Job and worshiping, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away because you look at the hardships as a cursing and you only look at the blessings of I got a good family, I got good money, I got a good job, I got a good that. So I'm going to worship God for all those things. What if God takes that away? You'll never be able to stand on the blessings. So your worship is even superficial if it's not read through the lens of Scripture. You see, everything we do has to be from who we know God to be. Worship is an overflow. It's an extension of that. Okay, and so let me, and I also say this for those of you, because some of y'all like, I mean, you're getting hard on emotion. Um, I'm not, because if you read the word of God and l- read the mercies of God, man, you can't help but have an overflow of worship, of praise, like Paul, adoration, and just this extension of God, I can't believe. And I wanna, so if you're also one of those people who say, I don't do the worship thing. I come late to church because I don't want to, that little sissy crap, I don't want to deal with that. I don't sing songs and raise my hands and chew on the rug. I don't do that stuff. Now, this is not about preference. This is not even about who you are. You could be the manly. Paul was probably manlier than you were, okay? He killed people. Have you ever killed a guy? No, you're you're a pansy, okay? Paul was a killer, okay? He was a tough dude. He persecuted the church. He was tough. He was zealous. But yet he burst out in praise. Why? Because he understood what God did for him. So this is not a personal, this is not a preference thing. This is not how you are made. This is not who you are. It's not an identity thing. This is, if you do not read the word of God and it cause overflow of worship, then there's a disconnect. And I say that in love. I don't say that to be mean. I'm saying you don't get it. That if you could read what God, so my, my prayer to you would be to get on your knees right now right now, and read, and just pray, and say, God, show me your holiness, show me my wickedness, let me feel the weight of that, and then show me your amazing grace, let me feel the weight of that, and let me experience all that you've done for me, and so that I can overflow in worship. I can overflow to worship, and so this is how it operates, though. Doctrine and theology, theology always leads to doxology, Doctrine and theology always leads to worship. And true, genuine worship always leads to dedication or surrenderance of life. True, genuine worship always leads to holy living. And that's what we're going to pick up in Romans. So you, don't, you can't worship who you do not know, and you cannot practice what you do not know. And that's where Paul picks up in chapter 12 of Romans. 
chapter 12, verse 1 through 2. We're just going to get to two verses this morning. I couldn't make it past two verses. He says, therefore, I urge you, brother, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might, may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So rather than identifying this section as um, the, the practical or the, pra- uh, the section of practice, we really should identify this section as the section of response. So it's this, what we respond, we respond to everything that Paul has just said. Therefore, therefore is therefore everything he has just said. So therefore, because of all that God has done, because of God's great mercy, this is what we respond in such a way. Okay, and Paul is saying we respond by all that God has done, it's great mercy, we respond by giving up our whole bodies, by laying, by presenting our entire person. And he breaks that up, the entire person, into two sections. He says there's the bodies and then there's the mind. So he says, I urge you by the mercy. Now that word urge is I beg you by the mercies of God. And I love that because Paul could have chosen any phrase that he has used in this whole section. I beg you by the wrath of God. I beg you by the justice of God. I beg you by the, the, the graces of God. I beg you by, by the election of God. No, he says, I beg you by the mercies of God. Why? Because in order to have holy living, it's got to be rooted in the mercies of God. You see, we are not motivated to have holy living by being afraid of hell. We're not motivated by, to have holy living by being afraid of the wrath of God. It's not what motivates us. You know, those are all aspects that make the mercy that much more amazing. But we're not motivated. What drives us as Christians, the greatest initiator, the greatest initiative for a Christian living and a holy living is to, to reflect on the mercies of God. And so if you have reflected and understood the mercies of God, it is going to drive in the way that you ever have conversations with unbelievers. That you've been shown mercy, so you will be a person of mercy. It'll be the way that you interact with believers. You've been shown mercy. You're founded on mercy, so you will show mercy to believers. It will be rooted in the way that you respond to God. Everything in a believer's life is driven by mercy. There is no greater initiative to have a holy living than to contemplate the mercies of God. And the more you understand that, the more that you dive into the mercies of God, the deeper your life will be uh, will be, or the holier your life will live as far as you walking in spiritual worship and living in worship. So Paul says, because of the great mercies of God, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now the first, our first natural response to God's mercies is to present our bodies. Now, in other words, because of God's great mercies, we need to respond in total commitment of our total person. Paul says present. The word literally means once and for all. Total, complete concentration of your body. The word body does not just reflect your physical body. It's also your thoughts, your will, your person. It's your entire being, including your body. So your body means all of you. So now it becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's offered to God. It's laid at the altar of God. It is your first response because of the mercies of God is for us to lay our bodies in sacrifice for God. John Scott, 
he says this, he said, no worship is pleasing to God, which is purely inward, abstract, mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service formed by your bodies. In other words, if our worship on Sunday is gonna be true worship to God, then we will worship him in all we are, in all we have, in all we do from Monday to Thursday. You see, here's the, listen to me. If the only time that you are offering your bodies and your worship to God is on Sunday morning, it is not worship to God, period. If the only time that you're singing praises to God through your body is on Sunday morning, this is the time that you give it. See, God has never been interested in lip service. He is not impressed. I mean, this has been so overwhelming to me. He's not impressed with us who could scream the loudest, who could sing the loudest, who could raise their hands, who could dance around. He's not impressed with any of that. If our lives are not a living sacrifice, an offering to God from Monday to Saturday, it doesn't matter what you come and do, how spiritual you are on Sunday morning. It is not worship. It is, wor it is false worship that is not making it past the, the, the ceiling. In fact, Isaiah says this, then the Lord said, because the people draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by repetition. Isaiah says, God says, they're singing the right things. They're offering the right things. They're doing the things that mommy and daddy and grandpa used to do, that repetition of, of we come to church, this is the status quo, we say the right things. You know, Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. We know the right lingo. We know what to do. We raise our hands because that's what we do in worship. We fall on our knees because that's what we do in worship. We do the right things. We pray before dinner because that's what we've always done before dinner is we know the right things through repetition. And God says it is not pleasing to me. God says, because your hearts, because you are far from me. Because God is interested in a worship that it comes from a life, your will, your being surrendered to God. We cannot compartmentalize our Christian life. Every day, all things, our feet, our hands, our income, our job, our family, our kids, everything is consecrated to God. It's declared to God. It's given to God. But notice what Paul says next. He says, everything which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, this is the NASB version in ASB. I prefer the, in the New King James or the King James translation because, on this one because the Greek actually makes more sense in the New King James where it says, rather than um, where it says uh, spiritual service of worship, it actually translates more properly to reasonable service. Okay, reasonable service. Present your bodies to as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. The word reasonable can also be translated to logical. So what's Paul saying? Is you know what the most logical thing to do is? The most reasonable thing for you to do is as a believer? Present your bodies to the will of God. You want to know the most the dumbest thing that you can do as a as a believer? The the dumbest thing that you can do, the most unreasonable, unlogical thing you can do is to keep trying to do things your way. Is to keep walking in your will. That's the dumbest thing you can do as a believer. Einstein said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. 
And yet, we as believers, man, we continue to walk in our will, to walk in our ways, to choose our path, to do the same things over and over again, to make our own definition of right and wrong, to do, you know, look at God's word and say, well, that may not apply to my life right now. We continue to do our will over and over again. And what does it lead to? Pain, heartache, brokenness, insecurities, fears. It leads to mess up after mess up. And then we just chalk it up to that's just life. That's just how life is. And I am convinced that much of just how life is is the result of your stupidity. It's got an amen in here, okay? It's the result of our insanity. Now, I'm not saying that believers aren't going to go through hard times. I mean, the Bible is very clear. Believers will go through hard times. But what I'm saying is majority of our stuff is as a result of insanity. Walking in our own will over and over and over again, expecting a different result. Where Paul says, man, the most logical, the most reasonable thing that you can do is to surrender your will, to your bodies to his will, every aspect of your life. That's what Jesus did. Jesus emptied himself from all the glory, came down from heaven. And in John chapter 6, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but of him, the will of him who sent me. At the end of his cross, Jesus says, Lord, not my will, not Father, not my will be done, but yours. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, look, Anybody who wants to come after me must deny himself, pick up his cross, and die daily. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my name's sake, you will find it. It's always been about laying down your life, laying down your will, and following the will of God. Your body's become a living sacrifice. Let me ask you this question. Are you willing to pray to God right now? God, wherever you want me to go, I will go. Wherever. My life is an altar, is my sacrifice on the altar before you, wherever you want me to go. What if he says, I want you to go to Africa or some village where there's only, they don't have AC, you're eating bugs, all they got is mosquitoes and malaria, and you got to preach the gospel. What if God sent you there? Well, what if God sent you to some, some place in America, like, you know, Texas or Florida or Wyoming? Like what if God sent you and said, you know what, I want you to go down to frog level and I want you to have community with the people, not just offer money and do that little thing and nice, God bless you and, and then offer them, no, but real have true community. What if God told you to do those things? You see, many people will say, well, I will do whatever God wants me to do. God, whatever you want me to do. But then what happens is we say, well, but God would never call me to Africa. God wouldn't call me to, to the prison ministry. God would never call me to the homeless ministry. God would never call me to another state because this is where I'm supposed to be. God would never call me there. In other words, I'm willing to do whatever God, wherever you want me to go, but we in our minds, and we've already convinced ourselves and implemented onto God where he can send us, and usually it's in our own comfort zones. So God, wherever means where I'm comfortable. Wherever means Haywood County. Wherever means I'm already where I'm supposed to be. But we pray Wherever, God, you want. Or better question, are you willing to do whatever? Whatever the will of God is. Okay, yes, David, of course. Whatever God tells me to do. 
What if God's told you right now to lay down your pride as a husband and be willing to die for your spouse, lay down your pride? But no, you don't know what my wife has done. You don't know what she does, what she says, her condescending. She doesn't respect me. I deserve respect. I'm the man of the house, and, and she doesn't respect me. What if God told you to lay down your pride, whatever? What if God told you right now that you've been holding on to this lie for years and years and years, what if God said, time to let it go. Tell the truth. But, but David, you don't know. It might, it might destroy my marriage. It might break up my life. It might break up the hurt people and, and cause damage. Whatever God said. What if God tells you right now, if you're dating somebody, it goes, God tells you to break, the, break up with them. Not if you're married. God would never say that, so that's not a cop-out. You're dating somebody, you know that you're doing things that are not right. I can't break up with him, David. I, I love him, but you know what your relationship is founded on is not of God. What if God said, it's time to end it and take me, choose me. Well, David, I can't break up with him. My CDs are in his truck. I can't just leave him like that. Uh, what if, no, whatever. What if God tells you right now that it's time to stop hiding behind the title of addiction? Stop speaking addiction over you, and it's time to get rid of the crap in your life and say, it's over. But I'm addicted, but I'm, whatever. Or it's time to give up the title of victim. It's time for you to give up that title of victim that you've been holding on to and, and, and carrying with you the pain, the, the agony, the, the anger that you've been holding on to. You're the victim. What if it's time for you to lay down the title victim and pick up the title conqueror or victor that you've been born into in Jesus Christ and God says it is time to forgive and move on. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but what if God calls you? What if God, at the end of all this coronavirus, tells you, every one of us, to walk into our schools, to walk into our businesses, to walk into our families, and proclaim the gospel to every person we see? Well, God would never do that. Well, yes, he would. Are we willing to do whatever? Are we willing to lay our lives at the altar of Christ to submit our lives? The most logical thing to do is to give our lives to the will of God, is to whatever, wherever, God, I am yours. Well, then the question becomes, okay, what is the will of God? You're asking, well, I would love to do that, but I don't know the will of God. I'm glad you asked because that's what Paul answers in the next verse. He says this, and he breaks it up in two commands. He says, do not be conformed. One's negative and one's positive. Do not be conformed. There's the negative to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the, that's the positive. So that you may prove the will, what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. So how do you know the will of God? Well, first of all, you need to no longer be conformed to the world. Do not be conformed. This is a present tense command. Um, it, it conformed, it means to be squeezed from the outside into a mold. Okay? Things are pushing you to squeeze. It's like you take waffle batter, you stick it in the waffle iron, you close the lid, pop it over, two minutes later, waffle, okay? And it's in that form of the waffle, the mold. And that's what Paul is saying, is this the idea of the world squeezing you into a mold. And many people, many Christians, we are constantly being influenced by the world. We act like the world, we talk like the world, we think like the world, we are living like the world. We become worldly-minded. And this is what John says about the world. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But listen to this. 
For all that is in the world, this is what the, the world consists of, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Okay, that's the world. The world is driven by their passions. They're driven by their possessions. They're driven by the pride. So let me ask you this. Are you careful with your life to not be molded by the world's narrative? Like, let me ask you this. Are we really protective over what is influencing our lives? What is being spoken into? What narrative are we listening to? Because I'm going to say this in all love. Only the ignorant fool believes that they are not being conformed by the narrative that they are placing on their life. Only the ignorant fool believes that they could watch what they want to watch, listen to what they want to listen to, read what they want to read, do what they want to do, and they are not being conformed to the patterns, to the narrative that they're placing over them. David, did you just call me ignorant fool? I did, if this is you. If you believe that you are somehow immune to the narrative of the world pressing in on you because there's a message, there's a narrative being taught on every TV show, on every news channel, on every book, in all secular music, there's narratives being pressed in on us. There's narratives being spoken. And if we are listening to this and consuming this and being speaking over us, I promise you, you are not immune to it. It is molding you and pressing in on you. It's gonna affect the way that you view yourself and how you got to look a certain way to be accepted in this world. It's going to affect the way you view others. It's going to affect the way you view right and wrong. It's going to affect the way you view God. It's going to affect the way you view love. It's going to affect the way you view your spouse, the way you love your spouse, the way you submit to your spouse, or, or, or cherish your spouse, or lay down yourself. It's going to affect aspects in every aspect of your life. It's going to conform you into that narrative. You're not immune to it. Now, here, I'm not saying if you watch one show of the Tiger King, you're going to hell. I am saying that it's going to be a slow process of conformity. It's going to mold you, especially if it's all, you're all consumed by it. It's molding you, it's shaping you from the outside. It's pressing in. Guys, hear me. This is not a salvation thing. I'm not talking about salvation here. You know, because what Paul is saying here is that something from the outside is pressing in, suppressing that which is in. And conforming you to something that you're not. You see, there's something inside of you that is being suppressed. And that is the Holy Spirit. Outside of you, though, your body, your thoughts, your mind, your word, your, your life is being com compressed and molded into the image of this world. Because remember, I'm going to say this again. I've said it before. But before salvation, your spirit and your flesh were all headed to rebellion against God. Your spirit did not want the will of God, did not want the word. It was a rebel against God. Your flesh just wants to be pleased and wants to be satisfied. That's all your flesh wants. Let me eat. Let me, let me drink. Let me have sex. It just wants physical satisfaction. But your, body, your spirit was a rebel against God. Your mind is up to you. You could put it on the things of God or put it on things of the world. The Old Testament, the, Israel, they try to put their mind on the Torah, on the law, and, but the problem was their spirit and their flesh were, in rebe were rebels against God. Here's the truth. In salvation, you have received a new spirit that screams Abba, that sealed you in the righteousness of Christ, a new spirit that loves the law, a new spirit that loves God. The problem is your flesh still wants what it wants, and your mind is up to you. You can put it on the things of the world, and now it's your mind and your flesh that are suppressing that which is inside. 
suppressing the spirit moving in your life and it's molding you into this image. It's not about salvation. It's about holy living. But rather, Paul says, rather than being compressed and being uh, conformed, he says, be transformed. So rather than from being outside in, conforming you, he says, be transformed. That's inside out. You know, this word transformation is actually um, the word where we get metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. You know, I was talking to Octavia. I was reading a book to her the other day. And uh, we got to this, it's a book about animals and bugs and stuff. And there was a caterpillar and a butterfly on this page. And I said, hey, baby, look, that thing was going to turn into that thing one day. And she just looked confused. She said, no, daddy, no, that's a caterpillar and that is a butterfly. I said, no, but that's going to turn into that one day. That's what it does. It turns into, no, daddy, that's a caterpillar. Not a but that's a caterpillar. No. And she just would argue with me. This girl is definitely her mother's child. She was arguing with me. This is not going to happen. But guys, so I just gave it up. I said, whatever. You just like I do with Savannah. Fine, you're right. Uh, no, just kidding. Uh, but even without audience, I forget what I'm saying. Um, anyways, yeah, so, but anyways, we know that in a caterpillar, there is the DNA, everything it needs in order to become a butterfly. It already has everything as it's squirming around the world, the, the floor, in this ugly little form, everything in it, it has everything it needs to become a butterfly in its DNA. And Paul's saying this, you have everything you need in your DNA, the Holy Spirit living in you, the temple of God living in you for godliness and righteousness. You have everything you need. That's what Paul says, you lack nothing everything you need in you your dna so in you is the potential to have godly living to have righteousness in you is the potential the dna to become in the image of jesus christ you have it so stop conforming and being pressed in from the world and allow the holy spirit to to let metamorphosize what's in come out and transform you into the image of christ Paul's saying, allow that to take place through the power of the Holy Spirit. And guys, many Christians walk around as worms. We walk around suppressing the, the, the word of the power of the Holy Spirit. We walk around suppressing the love, the grace, the peace, the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit. And it's sad because while you're saved, you will never get to experience living the manifest life of Holy living of the power and authority that Christ has called you to live. While you're saved, you will never get to walk in the newness of life that you were called to walk in. You are choosing to constantly stay on the ground as a caterpillar and not metamorphosize into what you were, everything in you, the DNA that's in you to let loose. But hear this, the wording here in the Greek is actually past tense. It's actually, um, or passive tense, it's actually talking about the fact that in other words, transformation, do not be conformed, but be transformed. It's actually a, a verb that talks about how you cannot do it yourself. You can't do it yourself. And so, in other words, you could walk out of here or leave, turn this off, and then try to become a better Christian, try to be a better husband, try to put down the addiction, try to put down the, the garbage. Try to br- you could try to do that in all your vitality, all your energy, all your strength. And guess what? It seems like the harder we try, the worse we get. Why? Because even if you put that to death, your sin... Now you're struggling with self-righteousness because you put this death to your sin. And so the harder you try, the worse it gets. What Paul is saying is you can't just 
Oh, sorry. Uh, he's saying that there's a transformation happening. There's two things that are needed to have transformation. First is the Holy Spirit. Second is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit does not work in a vacuum. And the Word of God needs the ignition of the Holy Spirit working in your life. The breath of the Spirit. You cannot have holy living or be transformed without the Holy Spirit, and you cannot be transformed without the Word of God. You can't be, you could try, see, here's the thing. So many Christians are trying to do it. They're trying to do it. We try to do this without the Word of God. And we have this movement of Christianity where we don't need the Word of God anymore. We don't need the Bible. You know, I'm more of a mystic. I'm a Christian. I'm a spiritualist. I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. And so we walk away from the Word of God. I'm going to try to do this without. And we try everything we can do. We go meditate on the mountains with the squirrels and the trees. We go you know, pray for hours. We go take our guitars and we sing for hours. We try everything we do to become holier living, to become more in the image of Christ, to be put to death. We do all that we need to do. And even in the church, there's this movement. I've been noticing this in, in, our pop, in a popular New Age movement of Christianity. What's popping up is this idea that Jesus is not the word of God, or the word of God is not the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. And so I have a relationship with Jesus. I don't need the Bible. And they're trying to have, and it, guys, it sounds beautiful. Jesus is the word of God, not the Bible's not the word of God. The Bible's an okay book, but Jesus is the word of God. And it's just this emotional, it sounds really pretty, and it sounds really spiritual, and it sounds kind of correct, but then you start to break it down, and you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Jesus is the word of God, and the Bible's not. Jesus is the word become flesh. That's what the Bible says. Which means that Jesus is the manifestation of everything that God spoke. And so let me ask you this, if, you, if Jesus is the word of God, but you don't need the Bible, how do you know what God spoke? How do you know what Jesus spoke? How do you know even who Jesus was or what he did? You know what? You know how I know? The Bible tells me so. You see, you, you've missed, obviously, Sunday school, okay? The very fundamental aspect of Sunday school. You used to sing a song Yes, Jesus loves me. How do I know Jesus loves me? The Bible tells me so. Okay? Fundamental. Basic. We know what we know about Jesus. We know what we know about God. Our relationship is founded and formed through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, through the scriptures of God. He breathed it. It's profitable. The Bible says, Jesus prays over his disciples and says, just as I am not of the world, sanctify them. Talking to the disciples by your truth. Sanctify my disciples by truth. What is truth? Your word is truth. Paul says in Timothy, all scriptures God breathed, inspiration of God, that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Because we can't have the word, we can't have holy living without the Bible. We can't. And if you're not reading the Bible, I'm telling you, you're not going to make it. You're not going to get to where God wants you to be. But you also can't have holy living without the Holy Spirit. So you could read the Bible all day long, but without the Holy Spirit, you know, there are many atheists who read the Bible as a weapon. You can't do it. It's, they go in tandem. They go together. So here's how it works. You open the Bible and you pray, God, give me the wisdom. Holy Spirit, 
open my eyes. Holy Spirit, use this word to transform me. Holy Spirit, work through this word. And so here's how it all works together. It all works together in saying, God, I am your sacrifice, your living sacrifice. I lay my life down at your altar. Whatever your will is, I will do. Okay, what is your will? I'm going to open the Bible. And so I'm going to read the Bible. What is your will? Oh, that's your will. Okay, I will do this. Holy Spirit, empower me to do this. You see, that's what these two verses are. It's, I'm your, I'm your sacrifice. I'm your servant. That's what you say. Holy Spirit, empower. It's as simple as that. But here's where we stop. We go, God, I'm your sacrifice. I'm your will. Tell me your will. It's in the Bible. I don't have time. It's boring. Let me get it from a worship song. Jesus, okay, you just love me. That's your will is love me. It's about me. Because this is where we get wrong. Or we go, what's your will? That's your, I don't want to do that. There's going to be another one. What's the other wills? What's the other wills? Because what is your will? I'm your sacrifice, whatever, wherever. But David, I don't want to do these things. I don't want to sacrifice my time. I don't want to give up Netflix. I don't want to give up the Tiger King. I'm halfway through. I'm not saying you're not going to be saved if you do. I'm not saying, you know what, you could do what you want to do. What I'm saying is that in love, you're an idiot. You're illogical. You're insane. Because you are willfully having the world push you in and conform you to its image when you can walk in authority and power. You can walk transformed through the will and word of God and the Holy Spirit moving into you. You have everything you in, your, in your life. You have everything you need for life and godliness. You have everything you need to be transformed into the image of Christ. That's how we're going to know the will and the perfect will of God is to open his word, study his word, pray that the Holy Spirit transforms our lives and to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. The problem with the living sacrifice, not like, unlike a dead one, like if I killed you and put you on the altar, you're dead, you're there, you're not moving. You are forever the sacrifice offered to God. The problem with the living sacrifice is if I lay you there alive, you have a tendency to want to roll off. You have a tendency to want to squirm off, okay? If I laid a live sheep on the altar, bang, it's going to walk off. That's why Jesus says, this happens daily. Daily, pick up your cross and follow me. Every morning, I'm your sacrifice, God. Wherever, whenever, however, whatever. Whatever your will says, whatever your word says. Holy Spirit, give me wisdom. Empower me. Guys, here's the thing. You cannot worship who you do not know. And you cannot practice what you do not know. Eleven chapters of deep, rich theology of the mercies of God in our lives should cause us to not only overflow in worship, but it should cause us to have a living worship in our lives. A response of living worship. That's Paul's whole point here. So as we move on to these next chapters... Remember, this is a response to all the great mercies of God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, 
We thank you that you did not leave us to try to figure this out ourselves, that you did not leave us to try to have to figure out your will, but you desire for us to know your will. You long for us to know what you want for our lives. You long for it. You desire it. You have laid it out in your word. Father, I pray that we fall in love with who you have revealed yourself to be and not some God that we have created. I pray that we worship the God that has revealed himself and who he is and not worship some God that we have molded in our head. And Father, I pray that we all become transformed into your image that we lay, lay aside the influences of the world and we become transformed into the image of Christ. We thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.